lovers. Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode two of Get Real's Raw Truth mini-series, where we focus on how reliable research findings require rigorous animal welfare practices. In our last episode, we learned about how the environments our research animals live in can potentially trash study results if we aren't monitoring the outside world from their perspective. In this episode, we'll explore study confounds that can lurk inside completely healthy research animals without us knowing it. What are these reproducibility offenders? And how do we manage them to drive the strongest science possible? Our guest today, Todd Little, is an expert in mouse models of human disease, and he's going to show us the way. Thank you for joining us today, Todd. As you know, in the Raw Truth series, we're talking about aspects of animal care that can, in and of themselves, contribute to this reproducibility crisis we're in the midst of. And in the last episode, we talked about some of the sort of variability of the animal's environment that can create changes in the animals and create changes in physiology and therefore, um, you know, create changes in the results. This time, I want to talk about some of the variability that can occur inside research mice. And, and I'm focusing on mice because 95 to 99% of the animals in biomedical research are mice. Now, you are an amazing guest to have because you yourself have over 40 years of experience in laboratory animal science, and 13 of those years was with Charles River Laboratories, and another 30 of those years was with Taconic Biosciences, and they are both established and trusted breeding partners when it comes to research mice. And in fact, in your time with Taconic, you ultimately became president and CEO of that company. So this is a real privilege to have someone with the amount of knowledge you have about mice. I don't think most folks understand that a good deal of the work we do with mice really centers around genetic manipulation, right? Manipulating their genomes. And I thought that maybe before we get into some of the genetic variability that might be contributing to this reproducibility crisis, that for the benefit of folks who don't understand a lot about mouse genetics, I thought maybe you could break down for our listeners, what can we possibly learn from mice by manipulating their genes? Well, first, Cindy, thanks for having me here today. It's uh, it's a topic I'm passionate about, so I'm, I'm happy to spend some time with you. Uh, I would say that many things can be understood from manipulating the mouse genome. Uh, It's a way to explore biological pathways. It's a way to manipulate targeted proteins and drug discovery. And the way that that's done is you identify a protein of interest and you understand the gene sequence. And then you can go into the mouse and with some fairly simple tools that have been developed over the years, you can delete the gene activity and therefore the protein isn't produced and you can see what happens when you, quote, knock out a gene. You can also overexpress that gene by putting multiple copies into the mouse and see what happens in the biological system when you do that. So you're, you're basically deleting genes in some cases to model human diseases because by deleting those genes, you delete proteins and that is the basis for some human diseases, or you're overexpressing a particular gene, which then overexpresses a particular protein, which then models some other kind of human disease. And I think the first question people are going to say is, wait a minute, you're doing this in a mouse. What does that have to do with human disease? You know, there's a correlation there. Maybe you can explain that. There is. Take a, something like a P53 gene present in 
both animals. And you can gain some insight into you know, knocking that out in a mouse and studying the biological effects on the mouse system. And, and that can be inferred into the human patient. It's not the perfect translational model because you do have a mouse system, but sometimes the biological pathways are the same. Right. And we know that that's true. There's a lot of biological conservation. And, and in fact, we've learned a lot about human disease by doing this very thing that you just spoke about, you know, doing certain things with the genes in mice to mimic or learn about the impact of that manipulation and then correlating it with what we see in the human situation. Um, so that has been really, really beneficial. Now, you went a step further and you and, and when you were at Taconic, in fact, you were involved in developing a humanized mouse platform. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that because that sounds a little bit more directly translational to humans. Well, I think it is, and that was the reason why it was developed. And that is you take what's referred to as a super immunodeficient mouse. So it really has no immune system of its own. And you prepare it by engrafting human stem cells, typically hematopoietic stem cells. And the human immune system will develop in that mouse. And then you come in and put a human patient-derived xenograft, a human tumor on the mouse. And you have the interplay in that model system between the human tumor and the human immune system, which makes it more translational. It is amazing. The, the science behind it is amazing. And it was used extensively in, in the development of immunotherapy drugs for cancer. Yeah, amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, and so so how grateful are we to these little mice, right? <laughs> so yeah, very much so. Yeah. So so now I want to get into more of the variability that can kind of happen in the background. This is sort of a strange thing for folks to understand. I mean, the first thing to understand is that most of our mouse lines that we work with, right, are inbred. They're bred uh, 21 generations or so um, until they're virtually identical. But there can be some shifts genetically among these animals. And maybe you can talk about the consequence of those shifts when you're doing genetic manipulations like the ones you just described? When you are using an inbred mouse, you're using it to control genetic variability in your test cohorts and your controls. And if for some reason the background, the genetic background of that mouse is not as you believe it to be, you could inadvertently be using a mouse that had a different genetic profile and therefore you, you don't have a truly inbred mouse system and you're no longer controlling for genetic background. And this happens more frequently than people think. You know, a wrong cross on a breeding pair can introduce genetic contamination into a line. Somebody makes a mistake, you cross the wrong animals, you know, you don't have a visible representation of a difference between strain one and strain two. Uh, and then eventually, you know, multiple generations down the line, you test the genetic background of the animal and you find it. It's, in fact, it's not a C56 or it's not a BELP-C mouse. It's, in fact, something that's hybrid with a, with a miscross in a breeding situation. And, you know, it happens. So the genes that you're manipulating are not the issue in this case. The problem is that you don't know about the rest of the genes, uh, the genetic makeup of this animal. You don't know how stable that is, right? Because the mice look the same. They're still black or they're still white. But you have been counting on a particular genetic makeup from the start. And if somehow some, you know, like you said, miscrosses or maybe even just plain old genetic drift, right? If something happens in there, you're not really testing your hypothesis on the same animal anymore, even though you can't see it. So the harm in that is then you report results that may or may not be valid because that background can change the impact of the manipulation you're actually trying to make, right? I mean, your whole study could be flawed. Is that right? That's right. It, it could be a reproducibility issue. Someone reads that paper in a peer-reviewed journal, tries to recreate it on a pure background, and they don't get the same results you get with your mixed background. Right. 
this is what is referred to as genetic monitoring, right? You know, checking out what the background genes are doing, not so much the gene of interest, right? But that establishment of whether or not that background genetics is pure. Can you think of some examples where um, folks thought they were working with one particular line of mouse and they thought they understood the background genetics and they thought they knew what they had, they thought it was pure, and it turned out it wasn't pure? Do you have any examples of the impact on uh, the study with respect to the manipulation that they were actually looking at? Well, there are some cases that I'm aware of where the entire phenotype uh, went away. So the the expression of the genetics of the mouse changed sufficiently so that uh, they weren't able to reproduce their study from study to study. Can you give me an example like what kind of phenotype? I mean, one example I heard was you keep talking about P53, which is a, a gene involved in cancer, right? One example I've heard of is, you know, you, you have a bunch of black mice, you think they're all the same, um, you do the same genetic manipulation in them, some develop a tumor and some don't. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a big problem, right? Because you're going to publish this and uh, like what's going on, you're either getting a tumor or you're not getting a tumor, you do everything the same. And then they found out, oh, it's because of the background genes. Right. Tumor take rates can change, tumor growth rates can change, and those are all critical endpoints in tumor studies with with a mixed background versus a purebred background. So it can be pretty severe. You may have an experimental design that can tolerate that kind of variability, and you may see nothing. But then again, you may see significant impact on what you expect for a result. So it's clear (laughs) that genotyping the animal for not only the gene of interest to make sure that you're doing what it is you set out to do, but also for just the general background genetic makeup of the animals, you know, is, is critical. You have to have both, in other words, in order to, you know, have a pretty rigorous reproducible study. Is that correct? That's right. And I think we're controlling for two different things. When you set up an experiment, you're controlling for experimental viability. So you're making sure that your reagents are the right reagents, you're training your technicians. But this whole biological variability sometimes doesn't get as much focus. And that's the things we're talking about here. Things like, you know, having a good genotyping assay so that you can get highly accurate understanding of your gene of interest in that mouse. And and looking at the genetic background of the mouse, the systems that have been developed to do this currently are so inexpensive and so quick and easy to apply that, you know, there's really no economic barrier to doing these things at this point in time. So it sounds like you're suggesting that people don't often pay all that much attention to the background part of this equation. And we just determined that that's just as important as the gene of interest part of, of the study, right? So I mean, why, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think it's common for folks to just ignore the background part and only focus on the gene of interest? I think they're very focused on controlling experimental variability and, and not as much thought is given to the biological variability. Um, you know, people always look at health. Everybody knows you don't want to do an experiment on a mouse that has a, an infectious pathogen in it, right? We've known that for years. I think it's just evolving around how much you characterize your animal model system. The more characterization you do, the less variability and the more reproducibility you will have in your research results. So gene of interest, and we'll talk a little later about gut microbiome and genetic background are all biological variables that should be understood. Right. So you really need to know your mouse inside and out before you start publishing your findings, because somebody else could do the same study, and those mice have a completely different genetic background, even just a little bit different. Um, it just has to be different in the right way, and they're going to get a different finding, and then there you have it. There's the reproducibility crisis right in a nutshell. 
It is. You've wasted animals. You've wasted your time. You may have to you know, retract a paper that you wrote because the biological variability was not well characterized in your model system. So the background really matters. And we need to get folks to start paying a lot more attention to that background. That seems clear. Now, the other thing inside mice that can be different is something called the microbiome. Maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about you know, what the microbiome is. Well, the, the gut microbiome is all of the organisms inside the gut of a mouse. This could be viral, it can be bacterial, it could be fungi, etc. So it's the DNA that's not host that's in the gut of a mouse. And, you know, as we know in humans, you have more bacterial DNA in you than you do human DNA. So to believe that, you know, that's not going to have an effect overall on the animal or the human is just not correct. Yeah, I mean, just to put that in context, um, there are 23,000 human genes in our bodies, and there are 3.3 million microbial genes in our body. I mean, so it's just this massive amount of genetic information that we aren't really paying much attention to. And there's a lot of biological processes that are interacting with that gut microbiome or the metabolites from the bacteria in your gut. You know, it interacts with the central nervous system that's called the gut-brain axis. Obviously, it's in play with things like Crohn's disease and IBD. I look at it as we've discovered another organ system that interacts with all the organs in our body. And we have just begun to try to understand what those processes are and what we can do to augment them um, in people and in animal models. And so it's kind of huge to get a good understanding of what's going on with this microbiome. And like you said, it's a relatively new field. Yeah. And we know there are so many situations where the gut microbiome affects mouse phenotype in autoimmunity, immunology, immuno-oncology, CNS. There's been so many cases where the gut shift has resulted in the phenotype being lost or being impacted. That's crazy. I mean, the genetic variability I get, right? You know, that, that could be, like you said, miscalculations in breeding. You put the wrong animals together. You don't know it. They look the same. You're not paying attention to it, you know, whatever. And before you know it, you've got a different background in your mouse. I get that. But the microbiome piece to me seems really, really concerning because it seems to me like it's easier to change that and not know it because there are so many things that can affect what kind of microbes you have in your gut, right? I mean, so let's say you take a colony of mice, they live in room A, and you move them to room B. Could that shift change the microbiome of those mice? It can. The institution's even more dramatic because if you change, let's say, the water, if you're using chlorine to sterilize your water and you change to acid, that's going to shift the gut. If you change sanitization chemicals, if you treat with antibiotics for any reason, if you change the food source, these things will change the gut. And that's problematic. I mean, so I think this is exciting in a way because it means that if we can get people to start paying attention to these things and to start including information about these things in their publications, that we can narrow the gap on this reproducibility problem we have. I think so. And if you step back and you look at the situation, you're going to arrange to have breeding pairs of mice sent from one institution to another, which means you've written a grant, you have a need for these mice, you're going to bring them in, you're going to quarantine them and make sure their health is defined and well characterized. Then you're going to expend time and money breeding these mice up to produce cohorts, to do your experiments, and hopefully have a successful paper in a leading journal. All of that is at risk if you don't assess biological variability 
when you first get the colony. So let's simplify this. So let's, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher and I want to start a study um, and I just got some mice from a collaborator. I want to get a baseline of the background genetics and also of the microbiome. What's involved in this? So I have my mouse. What do I do? What kind of samples do I take? You know, how much of it? What do I do with it? And when do I get my answers? Well, it's, it's relatively simple. You would go to the Transgenetics website and you would ask to be involved in what we call a passport program which is for moving mice from one institution to another. And in that package, we will validate the robustness of the genotyping assay for the gene of interest. That's done with a tail biopsy. From that same tail biopsy, we'll run a genetic background test. You'll get a vial with stabilization buffer in it that you put two fecal pellets in. So all of those supplies are sent to you. You send back the tube with the two fecal pellets and the tail biopsy, and all of those results will come back to you. For genotyping, we do between 24 and 72 hours. Genetic background monitoring takes about three weeks, and gut microbiome takes uh, two weeks. And then you have that characterized package of data on the animals that you're going to start breeding to produce the cohorts that you're going to do the same types of experiments that your collaborator is doing. I totally see that, right? You get your mouse from somebody else, different place. You want to get that baseline and then maybe try to recreate that baseline before you start your study. So now you start doing your study. And as you mentioned before, there are these other things that can also create shifts in the microbiome, right? It seems to me like you would want to check that background variability, you know, at certain points during the study. I think when you import and you start a breeding colony, you get a baseline. I think you can then, two months down the road, take another sample set. See what kind of stability has been established in that colony or do a, another one before you start a new set of experiments. It's not that hard to collect these. Everything you need to do it is provided. You get your results back in less than two weeks. And it, it's just a responsible way to understand the biological variables in your model system. Yeah, I mean, it feels like we have an obligation to do that. Otherwise, I don't know why we're doing the study at all. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I know that you spend probably every waking moment of your life thinking about these things. <laughs> and this seems to really, really matter to you on a personal level. Why is that? You know, I've been in animal models for so long that it just better science that's reproducible is good for patients. It's good for scientists and it conserves the animal model resources that we have. So I think it's critically important that we characterize these models before we execute our experimental design to do the best, most reproducible science that we can. Right, and not waste animals because Correct. we didn't do that. Exactly. Well, and that's the raw truth from Todd Little with Transnetics about the shift that happens inside our research mice. <laughs> we can't have strong reproducible science if we keep putting up with this shift. Am I right, Todd? <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> All right. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today and explaining that. Um, and you have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Cindy. Well, another thing that's interesting about the microbiome is that at some point, we all become five again and start telling poop jokes, <laughs> which is okay if you ask me. Um, in fact, I think a little levity is warranted here because the issue at hand is uncomfortable and quite serious. The fact of the matter is that shifts away from baseline in background genetics and gut microbiomes in these animals can be corrected to improve replication of findings across studies in collaborating labs. But many researchers aren't tracking either of these biological variables in their mice. So, questionable findings continue to be published by the thousands worldwide every year. It's a travesty. 
and our research animals and patients are paying the price with their lives. Why is this still happening? And more pointedly, why are federal funding agencies still allowing this to happen? The technology now exists for researchers to track the extrinsic and intrinsic variables that compromise rigor in biomedical studies with animals. We covered this today with Transnetics and in our previous episode with Turner Scientific. In my very strong, personal, Cindy Buckmaster opinion, every granting agency should require that we track and correct these study variables as a condition of funding. No monitoring, no funding. Now, this may not be appealing to some, but our best researchers will continue to work hard for us because they want what most of us want. Stronger science, faster cures, and fewer animals. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I hope you enjoyed the first two episodes of our Raw Truth series. I've provided additional resources for you to review on the episode response pages for each of these episodes. You can find the link to these pages in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. And hey, you know, while you're there, why not click the support link and make a small monthly donation to help us keep rolling? Your commitment to me will help me keep my commitment to you. Coming up, are we at risk of losing promising research on Alzheimer's disease when we need it most? Find out on the next episode of Get Real. We'll talk soon.